0: Hello, and welcome to this bonus episode of the Civic Hacker Podcast. I'm your host, Lori McNeil, founding director of the Civic Hacker Network and the Civic Hacker Summit. The mission of the Civic Hacker Network is to create and empower a globally connected community of people who are using data and technology to create positive social change. We do this by equipping and empowering people to move their change making projects forward. We also amplify the work our membership is doing by providing a platform through which Civic Hackers can publicize their projects, collaborate, and get the resources and support they need. Our motto is, problems have solutions. I invite Civic Hacker podcast listeners, that's you to join me on a learning journey where we explore the vast array of solutions emerging in various forms in communities all around the world. Join me in partaking of the feast of knowledge available from people who are leading the way in using data and tech for positive impact. The main focus of this podcast series is to bring you a sample of the interviews and talks that are recorded during the Civic Hacker Summit. At these annual online events, we have a specially curated invitation-only group of experts and emerging changemakers share stories, strategies, tips, and tactics for making an impact with data and technology. The next Civic Hacker Summit is coming up soon on November 2nd through 4th, 2022, so save the date and join us online. civichackersummit.com is where we'll be posting information about that. Speaking of the summit, in this special bonus episode of the podcast, we're featuring a conversation between two of the people who played a key part in making the 2021 Civic Hacker Summit lineup so phenomenal. They are Alan Hillary, co founder of Be Data Lit, an educational resource for data literacy advocates. And Samuel Sinyangwe, a data scientist and policy analyst who founded Mapping Police Violence and the Police Scorecard. And he co-founded Campaign Zero. His work is all focused on advancing data-driven solutions to end police violence in America. If you participated in the last summit, you might recall Alan's session, Connecting People with Data Stories, Past and Present. And if you missed that, hopefully you caught podcast episode one of this season titled Data Literacy, Black History and You, where we featured excerpts from Alan's session. And if you missed that, well, what are you doing? How are you feeling your well, my friend? Don't try to serve from an empty cup. Take advantage of the info that we have here for you. We got you. But I digress. So Sam's summit session, say that five times fast, um, was data-driven solutions to end police violence. And it was amazing to get to hear in depth from Sam about the work he and the volunteer team are doing, um, their process, the rigor of the research, and the impact are just mind-blowing. We'll have a podcast episode coming up in a few weeks where you'll be able to hear part of Sam's session from the Civic Hacker Summit, so make sure that you're subscribed if you're not already, so you won't miss his episode when it comes out. In the meantime, friend of the network, Alan Hillary, has gifted us with this important conversation he had with Sam when they recently connected. Listen in, and I'll talk to you on the other side.
1: All right. All right. Well, happy Friday again. Uh, It's good to have you here, Sam. Um, Like I said, we had spoken some time ago, and life happened, and time happened. So I just wanted to reconnect with you, see how things are going, and tell us a little bit about what's been going on since we've last spoke about the beginning of this year.
2: Cool. Yeah. I mean, uh, so I've been good, you know, it's been, you know, a, a interesting process of, um, you know, over the past couple of years now, really, you know, working to not like necessarily rebuild, but, uh, Sort of reimagine and uh, build out um, a data infrastructure and analysis that goes beyond, I think, what um what what we had, you know years ago, um, what had been available up to date, um really trying to move beyond um, a focus that that is exclusively on um, cases that are reported in the media, where people are killed by the police to a broader examination of like, where are the cases that we're missing, that we're not tracking, where are the non-fatal use of force cases um, and police shootings that that hit somebody but they might've survived. But nevertheless, like the, those police departments um, often have very high rates of police violence uh, and nevertheless might not show up on, on the radar if we only look at fatal incidents and we don't include all of the non-fatal incidents um, that they're involved in as well. So. Um so try to, to to expand the analysis, deepen the analysis, better understand um the trajectory of police violence across the country and like more importantly, um, try and identify like where are those places where things might actually be improving, where you might actually be seeing some sustained and substantial reductions in use of force or in racial disparities in policing in police funding in the number of officers and the size of the, of the sort of police incarceral state. um so that's really where it been. What my focus has been,
1: yeah, and just a level set for the audience. Um, you know, you've been doing huge work um, as far as social justice is concerned. You've grassroots efforts, I, I want to call it, in terms of putting together a database to help us have more transparency or begin to have more transparency around police interactions or to be more clear about police police killings or things that have happened in that nature. Um, I do know from just looking at reading some things on social media that I don't know you may have re- rebranded yourself, or maybe just to first start off with a little bit, just to level set, you know, some of the work that you have done.
2: Yeah, so um, you know, founded Mapping Police Violence way back um, in twenty fifteen, which really is, has emerged as a database um, tracking killings by the police, and you know, as, as I was saying a little bit earlier, tra- expanding now to include non fatal uh, police violence as well. Um, co-founded Campaign Zero um, and, you know, was involved with, with policy advocacy work uh, with Campaign Zero for many, many years um, up until a couple of years ago um, and now really building out the mapping police violence organization to have a deeper and sustained focus on u- on collecting, using data as a tool to fight police violence across the country and building out and expanding our understanding of uh, police, bi- police violence by going beyond fatal incidents to understand. So the full breadth of police violence in this country, how we can better track it, assess it, and identify ways just to, to stop it.
1: Yeah. And I know that they've you also done a dashboard with Tableau. You teamed up with them and they actually
2: helped as well. Yeah. So like even, you know, thinking about um, as we do this, like expansion, one of the, the big data projects that that we've really led has been the police scorecard project which um which is which is a database that houses all of these in- indicators that have to do with policing so non-fatal police shootings rates arrest rates um, police funding levels um, racial disparities in, in arrests homicide clearance rates police accountability rates uh, when it comes to civilian complaints um and putting all that in one place so that you can get access to all the data that we can reasonably get Um, and obtain under existing public records laws and use that to evaluate uh, and assess policing in each city. Um, Like that's been a huge project. Um, And, uh, you know, Tableau has been like a key partner that in helping to visualize some of the findings from that analysis. Uh, And so, you know, as as I said, we're working to uh, expand that data now um, to contain uh, data now for 2021. So like we're doing public records requests to thousands of agencies to get back data for 2021, full year data. Uh, we have data now going back, uh, good data back to 2016 and, and for large cities going back to 2013 uh, across those indicators. And so um, so just continuing to build. I mean, this is a, a country with 18,000 different law enforcement agencies that all have their own different processes and databases and systems and, and procedures for collecting and reporting data. There are all these different public records laws that limit access to what you can get in each state. Um, so really it is trying to uh, break through some of that uh, inconsistency and create some standards and data collection processes that can better track things across the country. Um, so hopefully we can better identify solutions. Yeah, that was
1: definitely one of the interesting things when, you know, I started looking more into your project or was sat in on some meetings about, you know, it's surprising and it's not in terms of like how uniform like each police structure is like, but I think what surprised me with that was just the variance, like how different it can be from almost, I don't know, with even within the same state, <laughs> it can be different. So, I mean, from a data perspective, yeah, that was definitely interesting to me as well. And it makes it hard, I can imagine, like to really score, you know, when you're because some of it, some of the scoring maybe, or maybe some of the dynamics between precincts or or organizations is probably like apples to oranges. And it's hard to maybe find like, I don't know, if there was a way that you were able to stratify, is that the right word? Or normalize the score the scoring. Um
2: yeah, so I mean, that's, that is that is like the fundamental challenge to creating um, any type of na- nationwide database that's tracking policing. Um, now, it is not like an insurmountable challenge, it's just a, a huge challenge. So, you know, there are other examples of detailed, complicated national databases tracking, you know, Issues that are just as complex in a much better way than than I think the government has done when it comes to policing. Um, you know, you look at education and the U.S. Department of Education, um, their Office of Civil Rights Data Collection publishes data on every school in America, um, where you can see granular, disaggregated data on the total number of um, kids by race by uh, by race, by ethnicity, by gender, by disability status, how many kids are getting referred to law enforcement or suspended in, in class, in school, out of school, who's getting in you know, gifted and talented programs, who's not, like they track all of this for every school in America. I mean, we're talking about way more schools than there are police departments. And they're doing it in a standardized and syst- systematic way and publishing the data so that anybody can look up their school. So that that is happening, the federal government is doing that, but when it comes to policing, Um, they're sort of like, well, this is too complex, we don't know how to do it, it's impossible, there are too many police departments, they don't wanna comply and share their data, and they create a whole bunch of excuses why they can't do it. So that's why this project exists because the government's not providing any type of uh, useful standardized data that can help us answer some of these questions about police violence. Um, But to actually do that work that the government's not doing, of course, isn't easy. Like this is not like a a, a simple thing to to solve. And I'll give you some examples. You know, when it comes to police use of force, for example, um, you know, there are many different ways in which police, a a, a given police department will track police use of force. Um, So if you're in police department A, um, they might do use of force reporting at the incident level. Um, So let's say there are three police officers who use a, each of them uses a taser two times against the same person. Okay, so three officers, each has a taser, they both use it. twice against this person. Um, in some departments, they would classify that as one use of force incident. There was one incident in which force mm-hmm. was used regardless of number of officers or people involved or number of times tasers used. In other departments, they might say, you know what? There were three uses of force because there were three officers using force. In other department, they would say there were six uses of force because each officer used force twice uh, and there were three officers. So depending on the way in which they've internally adopted policies and procedures for reporting these incidents, even depending on something as simple as what is the form that they're using and what fields are available in that form that they're using to track use of force. It can be drastically different, like what the actual use of force totals that you're getting from those departments actually mean um, and how you can actually compare them across agencies. Um, So that's that's the complex part is not only getting the data, which is like itself a challenge and there are all these issues with police not wanting to provide the data or refusing to provide it or public records laws not requiring them to provide some aspects of data Um, but then there's the challenge of once you get it how do you make sense of it in a way that you can compare across all of these different agencies so one of the things that we do is we look at sort of what is that like lowest common denominator what can we find across all of these agencies that tends to be reported in common um, that tends not to be susceptible to um, some of these uh, reporting differences. Um, and it tends to be that a couple of things. One, less lethal force is reported far more consistently than other types of force. Less lethal meaning force involving a weapon. So the pol- basically there's lethal force, which is like when the police shoot somebody, choke somebody, etc. Um, Less lethal force is a term which refers to all these other types of force that are technically not considered deadly force, but actually could cause a lot of harm, and in some cases do actually kill people. So you know, using a baton against somebody or uh, pepper spray or um, a taser or a police canine, like like serious uses of force causing a lot of harm. Um, and then there's uh, there's the rest of use of force, which is like your punches, kicks. Some some departments, they'll track other things that depart- other departments won't. So some departments, it'll be if you tackle somebody to the ground, that's a use of force. Uh, some departments, if you point a weapon at somebody but don't use it, it's a use of force. Um, and in some weapons, if you, are in some departments, if you w- s- verbally use like de-escalation techniques or, or talk to the person, that's included in their use of force data. So like there's verbal techniques, is like a category. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's all over the place. What we do is we focus on the most serious uses of force that are most likely to be reported in common across all of these different agencies. We also get information on like how the department's reporting use of force um, in the data that they provide. Um, and then we stratify it by size of the police department or size of the jurisdiction. So, um, you know, places with two hundred fifty thousand people or more um, are in one category. Like small towns are in another category. Mid-sized cities are another category. Uh, and then police departments are in one category, and sheriffs' departments are in another category. of different um, jurisdictions and mandates, et cetera. So that's a lot of complexity. Um, yeah. Thanks for being with me. But like that's why. It's important to like to think about and consider all of these inconsistencies and design a process um, that can try to to standardize this across, so we can begin to to actually make meaningful um, findings out of this.
1: Yeah, there's so many things going through my head. Like, I wonder if we can even stratify it. Maybe we should report it. I don't even know how we would segment it. Like, um, yeah, just a few things. Like, maybe if it's. Maybe it's not even possible to stratify it across the country, or maybe we need to segment. But one thing I definitely wanted to circle back with you on was when you were talking about the use of force and how it's reported, how, you know, three cops um, could be using a taser on someone and it can be counted three times, six times, or one time. Now, is that, can we at least hope that the reporting in that department, that it's reported consistently, like so, for example, if that scenario happens in a particular tar- department, is it always reported the same way? Or were you talking about how it's done differently across different departments?
2: So um, this is, s- so there's the consistency across like comparing one department with another department. There's also that internal consistency over time, which um, which can change. So particularly after um, the protests after the murder of George Floyd, a number of states and cities adopted new policies expanding use of force reporting. Um, so you have places um, like I mean, San Francisco did this in 26, 2015 or 16, um, Oakland did this even before that, um, but a number of departments are now catching up to that standard where now, many police departments are starting to report what they call shows of force or threats of force, Um, which is essentially like if the officer points a taser at you, threatens to use it, but doesn't actually use it against you. They're now required to document that in some agencies, Um, especially if they point like a a gun at you. Um, Now, what that means is if we're just looking at the use of force totals year over year, like you see a huge spike. You see this in San Francisco, for example. I think it's between twenty fourteen and fifteen or between fifteen and sixteen where they began implementing the the new reporting requirements around shows around threats of force. And so the total number of use of force incidents increased dramatically that year because they were reporting more things than they had reported previously. Um so that's why like the data is also disaggregated in a way that we're we're looking at the total number of of uses of force by type of force. Mm-hmm. Um, so that we can isolate out those additional force categories that are added in over time um, across agencies. That that tends to standardize across time. There are some, some exceptions where like the department, so Minneapolis is a huge, huge example of this. And I think, I don't think that this was done um, just by coincidence, um, but I think what what when you look at Minneapolis's uh, open data portal, they have a use of force dashboard and it basically shows that there is a huge increase in use of force around 2020 and then onwards. Um, now, you know, you look at that. You look at Minneapolis. You think about what was happening in Minneapolis in 2020. You had the murder of George Floyd. Um, you, know, you could just look at that data and be like, "Oh, like there was a huge increase. They're off the charts now with use of force. Something is really out of control in Minneapolis." Um, but then they put a caveat there that they changed their use of force reporting in 2020. Um, And they don't tell you how or, you know, how comparable that is to the prior years. They don't tell you how to do the work of um, making it comparable or standardizing it across those years. They just give you the raw data. They tell you you can't compare these two because there was a change. They don't tell you what the change was or how it impacts the numbers. Um, And then you see this huge increase. So it's almost Mm. like they designed it. Like if you were to design a system that would cover up an increase in use of force around the time that the whole world was looking at, your city for um police violence like you would almost design a system like they did it um that makes it impossible to reverse engineer given the information they've provided whether use of force is increasing or decreasing since the murder of george floyd um, gotcha. so so you do see those tricks um, you do see that in some agencies some cities um, and part of this project is like uh, figuring out where those places are and shining a spotlight and saying what's actually going on here like why like, is this just a coincidence, or is this something more nefarious? Yeah,
1: you know, when we were scheduling this, um, you know, this discussion for us to sit down together, uh, I found it a little, I found it a little ironic, you know, especially looking at the calendar yesterday, and then you know, think, waiting to meet with you today about we just heard about, you know, news around Breonna Taylor's case, and I definitely needed to make sure that I made a note. Just to ask your thoughts and reflections on that, you know, hearing that news um, about the arrests that have been made with four officers.
2: Yeah, I mean, so, one, I mean, I'm glad that that finally we're seeing some action. Um, you know, I I, I was surprised. I, this was unexpected to me. Um, I mean, it's been, you know, considerable amount of time, right? It's been years. Two years. And you know, this was something that was sort of happening under the radar in terms of the federal case moving or, or, the, or the DOJ's actions in this case. I mean, we saw um, Attorney General in, in Kentucky just completely um, try to evade any type of uh, responsibility for holding those officers accountable. Um, so so I think it's it's good news, but at the same time, like the broader context is one in which, you know, for 98% of cases, uh, no officers are charged. 98% of cases where people are killed by the police, no officers are charged with a crime. Um, and for fewer than 1% of all cases, uh, an officer is convicted of a crime. Um, and once convicted, officers get lesser sentences than civilians convicted of the same crimes. Um, so if an officer is convicted of, uh, let's say uh, involuntary manslaughter, like they tend to get a lower than average uh, sentence length for those those convictions. So um, so I think that that's, that's like the the, the caveat here is like this is good news but i'm not uh you know I, I wouldn't be surprised to see um those that case ultimately not result in a in a conviction particularly at the federal level which is even less likely than when a, when a state or, or even local da presses charges um so so that's sort of the 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 context but it's it's still good news because it was you know this is better than having nothing happen having no office's charged, and not even having a chance at Um, the criminal justice system, holding them accountable.
1: Yeah, in your opinion, do you feel, do you believe like this work that you've been doing has made some impact? You know, when you look out at, you know, first what drives you to do this work and then do you feel like in your journey with it, because you've been doing this for a while now, um, have, do you feel a sense of, you know, I'm making a difference?
2: So I think, yes, um, but I think on the indicator that matters the most, which is, are we actually reducing the number of people who are being killed by the police? Um, I think it's it's still, you know, an open question. I think we, um, you know, in this data collection process, the step one was really collecting the data that could help tell a story about uh, and communicate the scale of this this issue um and i think that many many of of many years i you know from 20 really 14 15 16 um much of my work was focused on like how do we collect this data and and talk about how widespread police violence is because people just don't believe it particularly white people policymakers like they would just dismiss each case like they would say well this is an isolated incident or maybe this one officer in this one case um, was a quote-unquote you know bad apple officer but the system as a whole is sound or the system as a whole shouldn't be challenged and that was sort of the narrative early on Um, I think that now um, it is I think that all of the people who would be convinced that this is a nationwide and systemic issue are now convinced that it is Um, and I don't think that there's much upside like I don't think there's like an additional group of people that like if we just had one additional piece of data or information on top of this mountain of evidence that's been compiling since 2014, like that would be enough to just move a huge segment of the population. I don't think that 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 is the work anymore. Like I think that that the the utility has sort of expended when it comes to that piece of the work. Um, and I think that that piece, like I think that the data, was instrumental in making the case for why this was widespread, how widespread it was, the fact that there 1,100 people killed by police a year, three people every day, I'm talking about the disparities of Black people three times more likely to be killed by police, more likely to be unarmed, talking about particular places that had more police violence, shining a spotlight on those places so that um, local organizers would have some of the cover that they needed to move through um, systemic changes. Um, so I think that work actually, like, that did make a difference. I think that those goals were accomplished in large part um, to the extent that they could be. But I think when we get to the next phase of this, which is now that as many people as, as we might convince of this problem are convinced, how do we move that core like critical mass of power? How do we leverage that power to move through policies that can transform and completely change these dynamics, not sort of incrementally or um, along the margins make an impact, but how do we leverage the data and the information to really substantially impact police violence rates? And I think that piece has yet to happen. Um, I think that there are places that, that, that are doing some of that work and doing it well, mm-hmm. um, but at the national level, like that's now the challenge and it's even harder because you have this backlash around crime. Um, that I think makes it even more difficult to move anything through, let alone um, some of the the more transformative changes that I think the data suggests um, need to happen.
1: Yeah, um, one question that I definitely, another question I want to ask too. I remember we we had spoken before, and you told us, you know, you shared with us your story about what sparked we're going to call it your activism back in the seventh grade. <laughs> um, you mind Sixth sharing a little? Oh, it was sixth grade okay
2: because <laughs> <laughs> i left that school and after sixth grade i was like all right i'm out of there i'm out of there like i ain't a buy." <laughs> yeah
1: i know you were telling me you, you told us you were in a school in florida and yep, yep. yeah and i put the activist bug in you
2: yep yeah i mean so you know it's uh, There, you know, growing up, you know, as as, I don't know, as like a black man in America, like I don't know, this is not unique. I feel like every time, I don't know, I feel like this is like I'm not like special. My experience wasn't like, you know, a standout, whatever, like uniquely bad or anything like like I was a kid in school and I was like a, a black boy in sixth grade, one of like almost every other black boy in sixth grade in America right now, who is more likely to be. Pushed out of school, disciplined unfairly for things that other kids are doing, suspended, et cetera, referred to law enforcement—all these things. Um, so that's like that. That experience was enough to teach me that the world was was not very fair. That something was going on, and you know, after sixth grade, like growing up, you know, that was only reinforced and reaffirmed um, by further experiences, uh, both in Florida and like all across the country. So. Um, yeah,
1: because you would actually, for people who may not follow you, um, you, you actually was an ed, you, you're an education policy. Your journey had you an education policy for quite a while before you, uh, I would say switch over to this and, uh, with the police, the police violence mapping. Um, yeah. Michael Brown is actually what I think triggered you from what I remember last.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, I was focused on, um, Really, school-to-prison pipeline issues. How do we stop kids from getting pushed out of school, particularly you know black black boys and girls who were more likely to be suspended, referred to law enforcement, expelled, you know, criminalized. Um, and so, and that was based on my like my experience, you know, growing up. That's that was I was impacted by that, and I wanted to make a difference um, in addressing that, you know, at a structural level. Uh, and then you know, my life changed um, in in two moments, really, that that I think. Changed so many people. I think the first was when Trayvon Martin was murdered and Troy Zimmerman quit, in part because that was in Central Florida. Like, I'm from Orlando, Florida. That's where I grew up. Like, this was, I went to soccer practice in Sanford, where this was. Like, I would be the the kid who got dropped off by the city bus and, like, walked the rest of the way home through, like, a suburban neighborhood, stopped at 7 Eleven, got a uh, Arizona sweet tea and Skittles or Starburst, and, like, would walk the rest of the way home, like, every single day.
1: So and much sugar, so much sugar. <laughs>
2: yeah, well, yeah, 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 yeah. I can't do that. Don't anymore. mean to
1: make light of that, but yes. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. thinking back, that was like, <laughs> like all I ate was fast food and like candy. Um, so <laughs> don't do that. But, but yeah, I mean, like that was that was so when when Trayvon Martin was murdered for like being a kid, like doing the same thing like that. Uh, that felt like it. It, it was it, it hit closer to home, just the location and the circumstance, and then. After that, seeing Mike Brown murdered and um, Officer Darren Wilson um, not end up being held accountable, I mean, that was something that really sort of catalyzed the fact that, like, this is happening a lot. Like, this is, the state is, like, intimately involved in taking lives. And not only that, but after that, we quickly learned that, like, there weren't even collecting data on this. Like, the federal government wasn't able to provide even basic information on how often this was happening um and that really was the moment where where I, you know I, I was like there has to be a way to get this information this information the data is such a powerful tool it has been a powerful tool it, you know it was a tool in my work in in, in working in the edu- in uh, school to prison pipeline issues it can be a powerful tool in in talking about police violence but only if we can collect the data analyze it and make sense of it and tell a story about what's happening and so that's the work that i've been doing
1: yeah and I'd have my notes here. Also, there was something else that you really stuck with me the last time you spoke. So you're talking about like if you weren't doing the work that you were doing, I think you said you wanted to go on to be an astrophysicist. Is that correct? Yes. And, and then you mentioned how you felt that this work or not really the work, but how I guess the environment we in kind of took you away from something, took you away from your dreams in a way. And so that really had me thinking about, you know, mission versus career. Like we have an idea of what we wanna do, but then there's something in our lives that just happens that we get put on this mission. You know, I've been experiencing that recently. And I really just want to dwell on that a little bit. Like, do you feel like your dream has been deferred of being an astrophysicist? Do you still think about being one? And like, do you feel, yeah,
2: you know, like how do you feel now about that? Um I mean, like this is, this is like deep stuff, right? Like I feel like this is um that is what like I wanted to do. I loved like learning about um, you know, the planets and all, you know, black holes and Stephen Hawking at the time. And like I was like I was all all into that, like um and like the data around that, but ultimately you know that seemed like such a distant thing right like that seems so uh i guess esoteric right like it is it's like out there it exists it's like a thought experiment it's interesting it's it's real right like physics Mm -hmm. how we exist like it informs our world but it seems like such a distant concept compared to it's so theoretical compared to like the very real life and death reality of police violence of structural racism in our country um so i felt like one it, based on my personal experience it was more relevant to to me to focus on those those issues primarily cuz they seemed of primary importance to my life and to the lives of people you know around me that, that i care about that look like me um and then i think beyond that i think you know there is you know you get to this point where you do have to ask like deep questions about you know am i being driven by trauma right is that healthy to be driven by trauma or to be doing what you're doing out of really like trying to address some of the challenges and um, traumas and violence that you've experienced or that you've seen. Um, and like, what does it mean on top of that, that like the work that I do is actually like itself extremely traumatic, right? Like not only is it like like informed by and like in in some cases driven by a, a, a deep understanding of and an experience with injustice. Um, but it's also like like my day to day is like reading through descriptions and articles and statements, arrest reports and information about people who've been killed by the police, right? Like that is, I mean, we're talking about nearly eleven thousand cases since 2013 that that I've reviewed. I mean, I mean literally, like nearly every person who's been killed by police in this country since 2013, I've read through their story, and to some extent, I've read through the description of what happened. Um, I've helped to code information about that and find, you know, information about the officers and all. I mean that—that's like the data collection piece of the work. Not even the analysis and the visualization, and the storytelling, and the advocacy, um, which which itself has has those components. So, um, so yeah, I mean it's 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 not an easy you know thing to do it's not uh like it has a, a it takes a mental toll on on you um and you know it, it is it is traumatizing and informed by trauma and like at some point like there's got to be you know we have to figure out like how do we one like there's like the self-care and like how do we like, you know, get go to therapy and like how do you deal with like some of these things personally but there is like a broader conversation i think like as black people about like you know like like in many ways, like we are disproportionately in the fields trying to address racial inequities that we've experienced, that we continue to experience and continue to affect us by necessity, right? Like this is like a war and we're on the front lines because like this is life or death, right? Um, yeah. And it's not by choice, right? Like it seems by choice, like you pick your career, whatever, but in reality, like th- there are forces at play that structure what careers we end up in, both institutional racism and the direct barriers and then also the way in which those barriers affect your own psyche and understanding of what needs, what are the key priorities in our country that need to be addressed. Um, so, so yeah, this is like a bigger thing than me, but I think, you know, that's how it's impacted me.
1: No, I definitely want to like add to that. Cause you definitely said a lot of things that resonated even before and even more now we're going a little bit deeper into it Cause I've actually asked you about it and also just on my journey and then just you know, today, I or guess or actually last night and today, I was commenting on someone who made a post kind of touching on that. Like, you know, a lot of times we're on these missions um, and a lot of them are driven by personal experiences and us wanting to make the world better for other people. And we need to sometimes take a step back, you know, balance ourselves because a lot of times we're so driven by the mission, or uh, driven by wanting to make the world a better place. And instead of feeling, I guess, traumatized or hurt, we figure, okay, you know what, if I just make that one last connection or have this one last conversation with Sam, you know, I'm doing something for the greater good. But at the same time, there comes a place where we have to just say, you know what, I'm not doing anything today. I'm just going to take a step back and be Alan or be Sam and just, you know, chill, you know? Um, and so it's, yeah, I didn't expect this answer in this train of thought, but yeah, this is definitely something that I feel a lot of people, and I guess one of the next questions I would like to ask is like, what advice do you give someone who's, you know, who finds themselves at the intersection of data and social justice? I mean, I think it's a really great intersection to be at. I think it's something that is needed for people who, for people who are in the I guess a level of activism, but yeah, what advice do you give to people who are doing this work? And you know, I'll leave it open like that.
2: Yeah. Um. So I think, particularly for folks who are who are thinking about getting into this work or are sort of the beginning stages, um, one of the key lessons has been uh, don't wait for permission, um, mm-hmm. because I think, you know, like I'm I'm. 32 years old. I'm like, not like, uh, you know, tenured professor of law at like Columbia university for the past 30 years of like criminal or whatever. But like, the reality was that the government wasn't tracking people who were being killed by the police in a systematic way. Um, a lot of the, Sort of legacy groups and and like like national groups at the time were were spending a lot of time and and focus on trying to lobby the government to do a better job of collecting that data. Um, Researchers were writing papers about the fact that the federal government doesn't have good data, um, but nobody was actually trying to solve the problem of like collecting the data that the federal government wasn't collecting. It was like talking about it, trying to get the government to do a better job, which by the way they still haven't done. Like they still don't have a comprehensive d- database despite all that pressure. So like that was not necessarily the most fruitful pathway to getting the data, I think. Um, so it was just don't wait for permission. Like, is there a way to get this data? It turns out um, that they're being reported in 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 local uh, news articles and you can find them systematically with, with a system of Google alerts. Um, and it turns out that according to recent research that that was comprehensive of uh, more than 90% of the total estimated people killed by police in the country. So there was, a, there was a way to get it. The information, it did exist. It just hadn't been compiled in a systematic way. Um, there were some gaps in it. There hadn't been a story that had been told. So, so it was just diving right in and seeing like this is a national crisis. There is a need for data. Um, the government's not providing it. And like, we're not gonna wait for some other person to do this work for us, or the government to do it for us. Or you know, like, we have to do this, this is life or death. We need to have this information so we could help move solutions. Um, and so So I think that's a big lesson. Um, There's no funding. There was like no, like there was nothing. Like it was literally, like it was a free trial version of Tableau and like a free trial version of Squarespace. And like that was it. Like the whole thing was like maybe like 50 bucks, 100 bucks total to like build website and like, like Microsoft Excel. Just like, so just find off the stuff ways to like use your creativity and your passion for this issue and your expertise to do uh, to just do the thing, to build the database, to, to build the website, to build the visualization. Um, I think I think in many cases like we get bogged down by systems and institutions that are constantly requiring us to ask their permission for us to build anything and in the process sort of water down or deradicalize or um, sort of push us aside and push our ideas aside or co-opt them. Um and I think that like we need to authentically be ourselves, our best selves and like do this work and and not be afraid of that.
1: No, I hear that i I think a lot of times too, some of us has been in such you know structured career journeys or structured career paths that sometimes you know we you know we do kind of think in that in that way, especially us who've been in more formalized careers longer maybe than others um. No, that was definitely so. I'm trying to think. Yeah, I definitely enjoyed that advice that you gave. I'm t- I took notes for myself. <laughs> um, don't wait. Um, I guess another thing is, are you still a are you still a one man team, or have you always been a one man team? I, you know, I, I don't know if that's clear for a lot of us <laughs> in terms of what you're doing.
2: Yeah, I mean, so. Um... I'm not a one-man team, so I have a, like an organization. Mapping Police Violence is an organization. where 501c3 nonprofit. Um, like, I am lucky enough to have, like, a, a number of really talented researchers and organizers who I work with and lead. Um, so, so, no, but that being said, I think, um, you know, th- there is sort of like a this idea that you need like a huge infrastructure and like a huge organization or an institution, right? Like this idea of like, you need to have all of these things in a row before you can even start to have a voice or even start to make an impact or even start to like do original research. And I think that 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 actually isn't true, right? I think that, you know, I I was literally just a person who saw um, articles about the fact the government didn't have a database and like when about collecting this information, right? And I think that that is, um, like, you can. It's totally within your power to do something similar. And there are a whole bunch of issues um, that there's not good data on. Like, not only, I mean, I mean, we criminal justice in general, like beyond just policing. I mean, jails, prisons, and what happens to people once they get out? Um, yeah, access to opportunities after people are like, reentering society. Information on policies and practices, like, I mean extremely extremely thin right and that's yet that's information that is critical to research is critical to organizers um and there's not like a good nationwide database where you can go and see you know this is my city and my city um you know this is all that this is the th- these are all the, the policies that they have in place Um, this is how it compares to other places um this is like the, these are the trends across all these different criminal justice outcomes that matter is what it means like there's basic um, like data and information that can help you be really uh, strategic about organizing and advocacy that's just not being provided, and that we can play a role in making accessible to people.
1: Yeah. Any recent wins or impacts that you'd like to share with us?
2: Um. So there are a couple things. So one of the things that that. Um, that is most interesting to me right now is is this conversation around alternatives to the police um and you know there are now alternatives being piloted at least in in many of the the nation's largest cities so you have mental health clinicians who respond to calls uh, where people are having mental health crisis instead of the police um you have places where um the people who are called so if if let's say you have a store and the store owner calls the, calls you know, the 911 to report somebody who was, who was homeless or something. They will send like a street response team that doesn't have a police officer to the scene instead of a police officer. Um, so what is interesting is that in the state of California now, they um, have enacted the Crisis Act. Crisis Act is the first statewide program that gives dedicated grant funding to alternatives um, to scale those alternative programs across the state. Um, and as part of their mandate, they're required uh, to distribute those grants to the places that have the worst policing outcomes. So places that have the worst racial disparities, the highest rates of police use of force, um, the least accountability when it comes to uh, misconduct complaints. Um, and so they're, one of the, the wins is that you know the uh, California Department of Social Services, which is administering the program, um, is using the police scorecard data. They're using the data that, that we produce to understand um, which places they should be making those investments. Um, and that's like a key example of, I think, um, how data can be a tool for really making sure that we're targeting resources and investments to communities that need them most, to communities that are most impacted by policing, police violence. Um, so, So I'm excited about that. Yeah. Do you feel a lot of um organizations
1: in your space are they becoming more data literate in your opinion or do you still feel there is a need for an increase of that
2: um i think that there's sort of a um like a divide i think in the in the advocacy and organizing space i think that there are some national organizations that have a lot of resources that are that are now able to do more research. Um, so these are like big or these are like the Vera or like Brennan Center um, you know like like large organization, even even ACLU, like they're able to like leverage all the resources to put out like data driven reports around um, so like for example, Vera put out a report on jail incarceration that helped to visualize jail incarceration rates across the country in a way that hadn't been accessible before. Um, so I think that some of that research is now being produced, but like on the ground, like in terms of grassroots, in terms of like everyday organizations, community organizations that don't have like million dollar budgets or aren't national in scope, I think that there's still a need to um, find data, to have data. I think data can still add a lot of value to, to their work. Um, and part of the challenge with that is that it's hard to find really good locally relevant data. So a lot of like the um, the national researchers, academics, and groups will put out these big national reports, but if you wanted to find out like how the data broke down for um, Nashville, because you are a Nashville organizer, like you wouldn't be able to find that in that research paper. So I think that there's still a gap in terms of making information really accessible and, and actionable um, for people at the local level, given just how, you know, there are 18,000 different jurisdictions. So. You know, each each local organizer needs like their own data set and information that is locally relevant to them.
1: Yeah. Um have you found that you have other organizations
2: using the databases that you've put together? Uh yeah, I mean I mean mapping police violence is in many ways the standard. Um I mean, there have been. I mean, if you go to mapping police you can see um, just a, a sampling of the research papers that have recently come out um, using mapping police violence data. Um, I mean, currently, there's like technically, there are three um, databases that track killings by the police to some extent. Like, there's the Washington Post one, uh, but it doesn't include killings by police that don't involve like a police shooting. It also only, only goes back to 2015, so it doesn't go back uh, further, which ours does. Um, you know, there's Fatal Encounters, which has been, like, OG. they've been around for, for a while. I mean, they have a very expansive uh, reporting system, um, but they haven't updated their data at all this year, and I'm not sure if they're going to resume their tracking, like, when they might resume their tracking. Um, and then there's, like, Mapping Police Violence. Um, so the only other database is the Gun Violence Archive, which is relatively underutilized, um, but has a lot of cases, but they're not really clean, so... There's a lot of work they like have a list of articles. there's not really any detail for analysis. Um, so there's like not like that many data sources. Um, and particularly now that we've expanded to, to include non-fatal use of force, like there are like no other data sources that that um, track this across the country in this way. and so um, so it is a key resource in that way. like there's not a uh, like it is a primary source to get like a lot of this information um, on police use of force. Okay.
1: Well, I definitely thank you personally for all the work that you've been doing um, to make this more transparent, to make it easier to begin to analyze. Um, As we begin to wrap up our conversation, is there any last words that you have or ways that we can learn more about you and your organization that you'd like to share with us?
2: Yeah, so um, the organization is Mapping Police Violence. we have two uh, like primary data projects. One is is at mappingpoliceviolence.us, um, which is a database of killings by the police. And then the police scorecard project, which um, is much broader, has a lot of additional data um, for, now we have 16,000 of the nation's 18,000 jurisdictions. Um, so you can go to police scorecard.org. I encourage you to check it out. Um, you can contact me directly. There's a, a, a email link on the site. Um, but certainly like get the data. Um, see where data might be missing for your city or county also that's also interesting because like that could be an opportunity to push for more transparency at the local level um and then more importantly use that data to make the case for uh, improvements for reducing use of force um, increasing accountability and ultimately creating alternatives that actually keep people safe
1: no good yeah i've definitely already started using your scorecard uh database i've used it for a few class examples where we're talking about data storytelling so i've definitely uh started playing with that. But again, Sam, I just want to really thank you again for sitting down with us talking about data and the intersection of social justice, also getting a little um, existential there with the mission versus careers. So it's always fun having a um, conversation with you. So again, I just want to thank you, and I can't wait to share this with the audience.
0: Special thanks to Alan and Sam for sharing so generously of their experiences, for being living examples of how to take action, and providing solid advice for all of us to use as we move forward with creating the change we want to see in our world. And I'll just take this moment to express gratitude and acknowledge the Wintu people. I produce this podcast in beautiful far northern California, which is their current and ancestral home. As always, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate you and am thankful for you. And I welcome your feedback because it helps me improve this podcast and better serve the network. So you know what to do. Make sure that you go ahead and give us a five-star rating if you love this show. Rate, review, subscribe, share it with everybody that you know that needs to hear it. With your help, other people will discover this podcast and the amazing work of people like Sam and Alan. Don't forget to follow the Civic Hacker Network on Twitter, Facebook, and or LinkedIn. And you can claim your free membership to the network and get an invitation to join us on Slack. All of these links are available on our website, civic-hackers.org. I'm Lori McNeil, wishing you all the good things between now and your next listen to the Civic Hacker Podcast. Problems have solutions. Let's get to work. The Civic Hacker Podcast is a production of Civic Hacker Network, a networking and support hub for people using data and technology to create positive change in their communities. The audio is edited by Lily Conway, and Kate Allison writes our scripts. The Civic Hacker Network is a nonprofit organization fiscally hosted by the Open Collective Foundation. Join the network for free at civic hackers.org.